I will tell you a couple of my favorite moments, just start off by telling you a couple of my favorite moments on Sundays, okay? Uh, one of my favorite moments is when, uh, you know, you'll be taking notes during the sermon, and you'll be listening, and it's a great sermon, it's a convicting sermon, and then suddenly you'll just put your pen down, and there's this silence, there's this, this power that comes across the room. That moment is just feels like the spirit is moving as his word is preached. That's one of my favorite moments. But my absolute favorite moment on Sundays is right after that, where we pray, and then there's a really convicting sermon, and then the song is just so appropriate, and then you hear the people singing. That's my favorite moment of Sundays singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to God and one another, and you hear the voices of the people, not just the praise team. It's when God's people sing in response to the word. I think there's something really powerful there. And we all know, I don't need to repeat this too much, we all know that something has been missing for the past year and a half when we're worshiping at home. We know it's not the same, something's not right about it, and Singing at home by yourself is not the same as singing with the church. And speaking to those even who are gathered here as an elder or pastor or overseer to my church, I still feel like something's missing. I still feel like there's something lacking that personally, maybe it's just me, that I want more of. I think we've come out of the pandemic and we're not the same people we were when we went into the pandemic. And certain muscles have weakened. And I think one of those abilities, or one of those muscles, is our ability and passion to sing. I can't hear others oftentimes. We're spread out. Sundays are supposed to be a time where we're gathered together, but we're spread out. When we were all outside, we're all literally spread out. And we're scattered instead of being gathered. Our voices are muffled. Even now, we're in two separate rooms. And I guess there's just a part of me where I think it's okay for us to long for more, to even feel like something is missing. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we might not sing. You know, I think, um, I, I try to think of like, why might we not sing? As a church, I think we always have rightly valued and placed the word of God and the preaching of God as the foundation of our worship service. Okay, we emphasize preaching a lot, but maybe not as much singing. That's sort of typical modern Christianity. Maybe we've gotten used to the idea that this time in the opener and the closer, that's warm-up time. That's filler time. I'm, I'm just missing the opening praise. Or, you know, I understand because we have really long sermons at our church, but closing set is now like, I got to go to the bathroom, Right? I'll hold it because the sermon, but right when we enter closing set, there's a stampede to the bathroom, okay? Don't feel guilty about that. I sort of understand, okay? It is a long service. We acknowledge that. But sometimes it feels like maybe, oh, the opening praise, I don't really need to be there. That's just sort of a time to get our blood pumping and sort of get warmed up for the sermon, the main event. Maybe you come from a background where honestly praise time or singing time, it just, it's sort of a madhouse. It's unorderly. Okay. 1 Corinthians 14 says it should be orderly. Okay. 
Or the praise leader is just like a cheerleader at a pep rally, and it's just constant like, sing, 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 and it's just like, you just feel like it's tacky or it's forced. Oftentimes in Western churches, and you don't see this as much in like Eastern Christianity, it's just we have such high standards in our, our worship, it just has to be excellent quality and it's very performance-oriented. We expect it to sound like when we hear those songs on the radio. And if it doesn't, it just feels unprofessional. Generally, and I think this is just true of us as a culture, we're sort of a quiet group. We're not used to singing loudly in the presence of others, okay? There's a couple of people in here, when you get into a karaoke, you know, you see they're crazy, okay? But generally, those are like the exceptions, not the rule, okay? We're not used to singing in the presence of others. Maybe it's awkward for us. Maybe your leaders that you grew up with, including those at our church, maybe we don't set a good example. Maybe you grew up with a pastor who's constantly just thinking that worship time is extra sermon prep time. I've definitely fallen into that. But what am I communicating to my church when I'm standing there and I'm not praising as an example? What I'm saying is that the singing of worship or singing and worship time is not that important. Especially for us guys, okay, or just those who have grown up in the church. Maybe there's this level in us that just says, you know, singing passionately, that's like youth group stuff. Oh, I grew up in the church where we sing passionately. I did that as a youth group kid. We jumped up and down. But, you know, now I'm just a little too grown up and sophisticated to sing praise like that. Too grown up to be singing loudly, and we almost equate godliness to be like this stoic, serious, strong masculinity. You know, maybe that's the picture I have of masculinity, this machoism that actually is not biblical. Here's a big reason why I think we don't sing, and this is something I think we should wrestle with. The songs we sing, oftentimes, maybe they don't reflect your heart. We're being told to declare things about how we're feeling when, in fact, if we're being honest, I don't feel like singing at all. That is something that shows up in my own heart. I'm one of the leaders, and I may come here and sing about how I don't want to sing at times. Maybe you're depressed, and all the songs seem so joyful, and we don't have a diversity. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, maybe they don't reflect your heart. Maybe for some of us who grew up in the church, we might not even recognize how weird it is that when the church gathers together as a bunch of untrained, ordinary people, we spend a large part of our time singing. If you haven't grown up in the church, you might think that's weird. Where else do we do that? Where else do a bunch of untrained, ordinary people come together and sing? Maybe the only place would be like when we sing happy birthday or something like that. Where else do we do that? But Christians... Almost exclusively, there's something about them where whenever they gather together, they sing. You don't see that as much in other religions. And so many of us who are newer to this whole church thing, we don't get why we sing. And maybe even if you grew up in the church, you don't get it either. Besides the preaching of the word, which we believe is the foundation, is central The main thing we do here together is sing. We spend about a half hour gathering together in song. Do you know why? 
And I think for me, I think I make a lot of assumptions about singing, and maybe we don't teach on this because it's sort of assumed, but I want to actually take the time to slow down and teach on the role of congregational singing in our church, to preach on singing. And, you know, I have the privilege, I get sort of the you know, I get to preach every couple months, and so I get to pick topics that, you know, generally, like, are on my heart, on people's heart, are very relevant, okay? And, but when people ask me this past two weeks, oh, what are you preaching on? Singing? Oh, okay. Of course, they're not going to be like, really? You know, they're not going to say that, but it's just, okay, okay. I preach on anger, like, oh, I, I need to hear that. I preach on suffering or weakness, oh, I need to hear that. But singing is like, oh, Except for uh, one person today, Mary, she came and said, I'm so excited to hear about singing, right? I love it, okay? But generally, outside of that, it's just like, cool, that's cool, right? I hope and I want to teach on a clear and articulate philosophy on congregational singing that is not only caught as a church, but taught from the pulpit. And I think it's important for us to think intentionally and biblically on the role of our singing here, okay? And so my goal is to teach you the importance of our singing and I am not even trying to hide the fact that I'm trying to lure you in to getting more involved in the singing of the church and to experience the power of a church that sings. And so four points today, four points today. The first two will take the longest, in case you're wondering, as they're pretty long, okay? And then the third, fourth point won't go as long. But first point, sing to God. And sing to one another, sing to the world, and sing to yourself, okay? So to God, to one another, to the world, and to yourself. Now, singing to God, we shouldn't just miss the obvious. You know, I shouldn't assume so much. The obvious point that when we sing, we want to first and foremost sing to God. Fifty direct commands in the Bible to sing. 400 times at least that singing is referenced in the Bible. The longest book is not a book about prayer. We oftentimes a song, say the Psalms are, is a book of prayer, and you can make it that, but first, there's a book of songs. And God seems to be really into singing. And I was thinking, why is God so into singing? And I, I feel like it's as simple as God likes it. God likes it. God likes it when his children sing. He takes joy in it. He's pleased by our songs. And I think you can assume that God loves music. Zephaniah 3.17 describes God as one who sings over us in song. He's a singing God. Later, I'll show to us that Jesus himself sang. And we reflect our Creator as we sing to Him. We are made in His image. God sings, Jesus sings, and His people sing. Now, I, this is the point that's the most frustrating for me because I could have gone in like a thousand different directions. We could do a whole series just on this first point of singing to God. But I want to talk and I want to address a couple different types of people when we, come, when we talk about worship or singing, okay? First, I think there's a line, there's like a thread, there's a certain type of thinking that has infiltrated the church, and we wouldn't say this, but our hearts believe this, where it seems like God is unapproachable 
because of our sin. You probably know the doctrine of justification that says we are justified, we are forgiven, you are innocent before God the judge. And before a judge, there's only two categories, innocent or guilty, okay? And if you're a Christian, you know at the highest level that you're innocent. But because you're very aware of your blemishes and your sins, you feel like your only response in everything is inevitable failure. Because, here's why I say this, oftentimes we quote Isaiah 64, 6 that says, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. I don't know how many times I've heard that even in just our church. And I think misunderstanding and misquoting that verse has caused a lot of damage. The verse specifically says, Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, okay? And we can take this to mean that even in our most sincere days, even at your best moments, all of that is just polluted rags in the sight of God. You're a sinner and everything you do falls short. Everything you do before the Lord is tainted. And some of us maybe have this picture of God. Maybe we get this from our own fathers or something like that, where God is just temperamental. He's just always grumpy. He's annoyed. He's always scowling at you, ready to pounce, ready to criticize, never pleased, always grumpy, and never pleased with his children. Always filthy. Now, is that what Isaiah is saying? Okay, Rand did a great job in his Isaiah series. Look at me pitching Rand series, okay? All right. Every week, new series to pitch, right? In verse 5, though, and go listen to that. He does a more thorough explanation. But in verse 5, look at what verse 5 of that chapter says. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. And this seems to be a separate category from the filthy rags righteousness group. Seems like this is a different group of people. And we see the true filthy rags righteousness group show up in Isaiah 65. Those who mock God and say, and this is what verse uh, 5, 2 through 5 says in Isaiah 65. I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in guardians, making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs, spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near for I am too holy for you. Regarding these people, God says, these are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. The person who comes to church, they've got their, their business suit on. My kids are well-behaved. Oh, I put a lot of money in the offering basket. But during the week, they're cheating on their wife. They're running their business with no integrity, always screaming at their kids, calling them failure. Your righteous deeds are filthy. I don't think most of us approach God in seeing in that type of way, do we? But we come to God with a desire to want to please Him. Is that possible? Is it possible for God's children, His blood-bought, born again, 
spirit-filled children to live in such a way that pleases him and brings him joy? Is that even possible? Or is everything you do filthy? 1 Thessalonians 4.1, since we just went over 1 Thess, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do you know people who are generous, who give of themselves for the benefit of others, who sacrifice themselves? Christian, your Father loves you, and He sings over you. He, yes, yes, He grieves over your sin. It breaks His heart. But we can live in such a way that by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit, and we please Him. Quoting one pastor named Kevin DeYoung, he says, We need a category of good deeds that are truly good, but not perfectly good. That are truly good, but not perfectly good. Now, any parent can understand that type of category, category right? Because oftentimes we approach God just as innocent or guilty, okay? As perfect or filthy, okay? But any parent here can understand there's a good category, even though it's far from perfect. How often, how often does my kids, especially my daughter, come up to me and say, Daddy, Daddy, look at my picture, and I look at this, and it's really bad for my self-esteem. I, I know I'm growing into a dad bod, or I'm already there, but I look like Santa Claus in this picture. Do I look at her and say, oh, filthy rags. Do it again. No. I say, let's put it on the fridge. Even though it makes me feel terrible. This is how you view me, right? But thankfully, she's getting better and better, and now I have a neck, okay? <laughs> but it doesn't look anything like me, like me, but was it good? Was it sincere? I'm pleased. Talking about our special access, our special relationship, okay? Because you might read the Old Testament, or maybe you miss the fact that as children of God, New Testament believers have a very, very special relationship with God where we're the only ones who can call him Father. And the only person, Tim Keller says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. We forget that as children of God, we have special privileges. We have a Father who loves us. He's not constantly scowling at you. He delights in you. This is my son. This is my daughter with whom I love. And as a father, yes, he may discipline you, but he always loves you. He's like that grandfather or that parent who constantly just wants to go around showing kid, uh, people pictures of his grandchildren. He not only loves you, agape love, it says he loves you, he likes you, phileo love. And I think sometimes we still approach God and worship like he's our judge. And we just feel like either way, I, yeah, my, it, was, it was a failure. First and foremost, you please God when you come to him and you sing. 
trusting him when he says, you're his child. He loves you, and therefore you approach with boldness, not fear. It's when we have faith in Christ and his work on our behalf that we can follow Hebrews 12, 28 that says, let us offer to God worship that is acceptable. It's in view of his mercies when we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That is our spiritual worship. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, but by faith, you can please him. And on a side note on that, if you are an unbeliever, it is impossible to please God. Because God is a judge to you. But for believers, I, I want to say as my first, first point, don't sing to God like you're worthless. Don't sing to God with fear, feeling like everything I do is inevitable failure. Sing to him like a child would sing to his parent. Get your eyes off of your shortcomings. Get your eyes on Christ, the faithful one, and sing with gladness to your father who is pleased. This is my child whom I love. With him or her, I am well pleased. Now, to that group, I hope I can encourage you. And now, let me flip. To another group, I hope I can rebuke you. Okay? Now, let me address those who know him as father, but approach him in a casual, lukewarm, unintentional, lazy, bored way. He's your father, but he's not your father in heaven. We forget that he's our father in heaven, his transcendence, and we oftentimes forget or we just don't take God seriously. Quoting Hebrews 12, 28 again, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And this comes in the context of the chapters on living by faith. But singing to God, our Father, doesn't mean you sing casually or with irreverence. There should be something awesome or full of awe. That's how the word awful, what it originally meant. Full of awe when you approach God with awe, reverence, and wonder. It used to be a, a virtue for someone to be a God-fearer. Ecclesiastes 5.1 says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And this is talking about the temple of God where God dwelt, but it's saying you need to prepare. And the temple today is not located in a physical building or location, but it's wherever God's people gather together. Think about how you came to church today. Think about your mindset as we gather on a Sunday. Think about your personal preparation. Think about the past couple of hours. Think about how the way you spent last night. What does that say about how you value today? Think about how you just sang in the morning. Do you feel guilty? Good. I will not give in to this narrative that says that all guilt is wrong. We have this idea that guilt is always wrong, but guilt here 
good guilt is there to show us our Savior and our need for repentance and faith. That's what good guilt will, guilt will do. Put aside a casual, lukewarm, apathetic approach to singing to God. Man, it is my prayer that, you know, we could come in with our coffee and, you know, come in dressed not in the way maybe our parents' generation dressed. And that's not, because those are not the issue. But maybe there's something to be said about the previous generation. When they came to worship, they prayed and they sang. Sing with reverence, sing to your Father, and let me just add one last point. Sing with your entire being to God, okay? This is just saying, sing with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, okay? And when we sing, it's a tangible way for us to express our love for God. And Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name, all that is in, within me. I want to honor God with my mind, my heart, my hands, with every part of me. Starting with the mind, it's good to be aware of what we're doing and what we're saying to pray and sing with our minds engaged. 1 Corinthians 14, 15 says, what am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. We don't just turn off our brains when we come and sing and dance around. We don't do that. And we pray and sing with every part of our body. That's why God, I think, chose music. Isn't that what music does? It engages every part of our souls that, you know, if I just read the lyrics to you, it doesn't do the same thing. There's something about music that is deeper than words. Our heart is involved in music. Our feelings are involved in music. Our bodies are involved in music. That's why people dance. That's why you tap your feet when you hear a song you like. That's why you want to move. You like air drum in the car. You're singing to yourself in the car. Music does that. Psalm 84, 2. My body and soul are brought together as we praise. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. My lips, Psalm 71, 23. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also which you have redeemed. We're singing about and to God. It's weird to me when we're seeing a mighty fortress is our God. God is mighty to save. How great is our God. We're singing of the blood of the lamb who was slain. And we just have this scowl on our face. I don't want to be too strong on this point, but a little, a little excitement wouldn't be the worst thing, right? A little, little passion, a little anticipation when you come to church. We're singing to God. Second point, we're singing to one another. Singing to one another. I think this is a big one. Colossians 3, 16 through 17 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay? 
This is a great passage. And the main command, the main imperative of this passage is let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Okay? And I like how it adds richly. We don't want the gospel to just sort of be at the surface of our hearts. We want to be melted by the gospel. We want to drill it down deep into our souls. We want it to um, just be part of who we are, okay? Now, everything else in this passage is a participle. It's explaining how do you do that command. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom through songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. I like how the NIV actually translates this verse. I think it gets to the heart of it. It says, teaching and admonishing one another through songs and hymns and spiritual songs. That's the way the gospel will dwell richly in our hearts as a church as we teach and admonish one another through song. And Ephesians 5.19, which is a parallel passage, supports this idea that we are to teach and sing to one another. Ephesians 5.19 says, But do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, That's what happens when the Word of Christ dwells richly within you. Okay? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. There you see both audiences. You see God singing to the Lord with your heart, and then we see singing and addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are singing to God, but we're singing to encourage one another that the word of Christ may dwell richly in us. Singing has a teaching function within the church. If we're honest, how much of our theology growing up in youth group or whatever church you came from, how much of your theology has been ingrained in you from the songs? I've heard many people say, and it's well-intentioned, I understand why they're saying it, but our worship shouldn't be centered on man. It should be God-centered. Or we shouldn't sing songs about God, we should sing songs to God. That sounds nice until you actually think about it and see what God had to say about how he wanted us to sing to him. And he said, sing songs to one another. You look at the Psalms and how many of them are not about God, they're about them singing to each other or about Israel. We are singing to one another. And when you put that to melody, when you put that to song, there's something powerful. You know, I'm normally extremely good at ignoring reggae's voice, okay? But for some reason, on Sundays, I find myself, his voice is ringing in my head, even after service. I can't get it out. It just goes with me, and eventually I've learned to just try to sing and, you know, drown it out, okay? And there have been plenty of times I come to church and I just don't want to be here and the word of Christ is not richly dwelling within me and someone can sit there and just recite a verse to me and maybe my heart will be responsive to that, reminding me, hey, brother, your sin has been paid for and that could be powerful, but oftentimes it's the singing of the person next to me that hits me the most. The preacher has a responsibility, and it is a responsibility, a weighty responsibility to preach the gospel, and the entire congregation has a responsibility to sing the gospel. And you put those two together, and you have my favorite moment where the word of Christ is dwelling richly in our souls. 
I used to visit different campus ministries. This is maybe like five, six years ago, and there was this trend going around campus ministries and college groups that drove me crazy, okay? It was, it, I, there wasn't a name to it, but basically, you're supposed to go into the service, and then you turn off all the lights, and the worship leader says, I want you to spread out amongst the room so that no one around you can hear you. And we're going to turn off the lights. We're just going to have the, lights on, uh, the song lyrics on, and I want you to just be undistracted, close your eyes, and don't, don't worry at all. Don't, just pretend they're not there and sing to God in your private devotional time. Drove me crazy. It's missing the point. This is so much bigger than my personal experience. This is not my song and my private time with God. We sing together. We sing to one another. Our gatherings are not meant to be like this turbocharged devotional time. That's missing the point altogether. When we are scattered, you may do your, you should have your private devotional times, but when we're gathered, there's something special about that that is different from just saying, all of life is worship, all of life is worship. We all know all of life is worship, but there's a special power when we gather together. Martin Luther says, at home in my own house, there's no warmth, there's no vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. One Swedish proverb says, a shared joy is a double joy. And I think that's what happens. There's something heightened, there's something enhanced about worship when it's done together. Christ in me meets Christ in you. And we sing to Christ together. I love it when I sing and I hear people sing loud and energetic. And they're terrible. They're terrible. It's, when, you know, when I was a youth pastor, it's awesome, right? The kids just cannot sing. We cannot sing. Not everyone can sing. Not everyone loves to sing. Some of us are terrible at singing. It may not be beautiful, but you could still be loud. Sing loud, possibly beautiful, possibly not. But we can at least aim for volume. There's no such thing as singing too loud to God. To quote my second favorite Christmas movie, Elf, Buddy the Elf says, singing is just like talking, except longer and louder, and you move your voice up and down. My favorite movie is The Santa Claus, okay, just so you know, all right? All of you Elf fans, and then Jingle All the Way. You guys like that one? Yeah. Old school, okay? Let's get back on topic. All right. Everyone can do it, and if you stink at singing, laugh at yourself. It's a great opportunity to laugh at yourself and be humbled. You're not singing to impress others. You're singing to praise God and to encourage the body. God doesn't care how well you sing. There's no additions here for those who could praise God. One pastor named Jonathan Lehman, I like how he puts this. He says, the most beautiful instrument in any Christian service is the sound of the congregation singing. Far better than the sweet harmonies of a few trained singers is the rough and robust sound of pardoned criminals delighting with one voice in their Savior. This time is not about you, okay? I could go on and on about this. It's not about your personal preferences, about how you feel about the song. A servant puts themselves last. 
1 Corinthians 13 says, those who love, they do not insist on their own way. Think about others, how they're experiencing it. Be motivated by love for the church and love for God because you have an opportunity to teach and encourage as you sing. And when we sing, we turn from these self-absorbed individuals into a self-denying family of believers. And you might have preferences. We all have preferences. But in light of Colossians 3.16, this passive, critical, spectator attitude about singing does not make sense. And let me just add a point here, and I'll finish this point off. Um, Speaking as a dad and overseer over the kids. Who's included in that one another? The kids. The next generation. Let the little children come. Psalm 145 verse 4 says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. The songs we sing are not just meant to be sung across the generations, not just upward, but to the next generation. Okay? Not just to one another, but to the next generation. And when we have kids, you know, as long as we can, at least it's my hope that we'll have the kids around when we're singing songs, that's not a convenience thing. That's a value thing. We want the children to be here as much as loud as they are, as much as they might annoy us, as much as they might distract us. We want all the cries. We want all the screams. We want all the distractions that they bring because we get to sing to them. The older should declare to the younger, we tell of God's wondrous acts and hope that one day they will join in true worship with song and praise We're here to pass on God's greatness to the next generation. That's like my secret motive for like, I want to be part of this church. I want to be a part of a church where I'm going to pass on the gospel to the next generation, to my kids' generation, and to the grandkids, and on and on. I want to be a dad who is constantly singing to my kids. Not too stoic, not too masculine, which is actually just immaturity. I want my kids, Tammy and Micah, to come to church. When they grow up, they may not think, oh, he was the best singer, he was doing this, he was doing that, but dad was always singing. And when we came together as a church, they sang. And for parents here, if we're following Deuteronomy 6, which tells us in every moment of your day to teach your children the greatness of God, sing to them wherever you go. It doesn't matter if you teach them you're a good singer. It does matter if they think you're a worshiper. Sing to one another, including the sing to the next generation. Third point, sing to the world. And I won't be able to go over this too much, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, the verse I referenced earlier about singing with your mind and, your, and like your heart, Um, There it's admonishing the church to seek prophecy more than they seek the gift of tongues because he describes outsiders at the gathering. He assumes that they're going to be there. And he wants them to understand. And what the Bible says is that God wants us us to sing to him. He wants us to sing to edify the body. And God wants the world to overhear us. God directs his people to worship him before the nations. We're not here simply to communicate the gospel to them, but celebrate the gospel before them. 
So in other words, what does our singing do? In public worship, we exalt God through songs, we edify the body, and we're evangelizing the nations. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's an evangelistic edge here where it's now no longer just the priests or the Levites in the Old Testament who are to do the singing and the worship. It's all of us are now a priesthood of believers. We are now all ministers of the gospel. And we need to lead worship in a way when we gather together and when we sing, people see Christ. The God who saves by the gospel, the church formed by the gospel, and the world in need of the gospel. Imagine what our singing sounds like to an on-looking world that doesn't believe Jesus. Jesus says in John 17, his high priestly prayer, he says, The world will know as we love one another, when we're joined together, people who would otherwise have nothing to do with each other, singing to one another about the grace of God. We come together, we sing of our beliefs, we're united in song, different stories, different backgrounds, different ethnic groups, and as an expression of our unity, we join in one voice and we declare to one another we're on the same page, united around the same thing, one gospel, one church, one faith, one voice, one song. That's a powerful witness. Hearing the truths of the gospel preached, prayed, sung. Who do you know that might come and be saved through that? Lastly, fourth point, singing to ourselves, okay? And I intentionally put this as the last point. It's important, but and a part of me is like, ah, oh, I don't want us to be more preoccupied with ourselves than we are, right? But it is important that we know that we're singing to ourselves as well. Because well, let's talk about when we don't want to sing. Heartfelt praise, you know, it doesn't always come natural, right? It doesn't always come easy. Maybe right now you feel like your soul is in a desert. Don't give up. You don't know how wide it is. Maybe you're almost at the springs of living water. And when you are in a time of need, Hebrews 4, 14, uh, verse 16 says, Let us then draw with confidence, with confidence, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How can you draw near with confidence? Come to God and sing. You are singing to yourself. That's what Psalm 42, I always counsel Psalm 42. Psalm is there, David, it sounds like he's in some kind of depressive state. Okay? He doesn't want to eat. His tears are his food. All night, he can't sleep. And what does he do? He sings a song to himself, hoping God. And the Psalms especially are so valuable as songs because you see where they start. Oftentimes, that's a different place where they end. They start by saying, God, where are you? Where are you? How long? How long, oh God? And they end by saying, I will trust in you because you've been faithful to me. Hope in God. I'll trust in your faithfulness. Have you ever experienced that? There are many nights I cannot sleep. I'll wake up and I'll just lay there for hours. 
And I've learned, and I'm getting better at how to handle myself in those moments. And I'll just lay there, and then I'll get up, and I'll usually turn off the light or turn on the lights because I don't like laying there in the dark. And I'll just, I'll start singing to God. Have you guys ever just, in the darkest moments of your life, you just, I'll sing, Lord, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. And you're struggling and you don't want to be here. But you sing and you hear yourself. And you're preaching to yourself. You're counseling to yourself. It's not just a mental exercise. And you process your pain in a way where eventually it brings you to praise. Music doesn't just prepare us for battle. Song itself is a form of warfare. Music is armor. Song is a weapon. You know, I mentioned Ephesians 5 earlier, and it says how a spirit-filled person sings. I think it also works the other way around, where the person who wants to be spirit-filled can sing, and as you sing, the spirit will fill you up. It's so much deeper when you sing. It helps you express your pain, your sadness, your anger, your bitterness in a way that just words can't do. I think in that sense, spiritual singing is like spiritual warfare. It's like wrestling with God. You guys saw in Genesis, Jacob, he wrestled with God all night, and he says, I will not, bl- I will not let go until you bless me. That's what prayer and song, I think, is. And singing is, I think, just another way of praying. Praying your emotions, praying your struggles. You you may not want to declare praise at first, but the songs will help you rise to praise. Isn't that what David did? You know, like our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers powers and spiritual forces of wickedness, wickedness in heavenly places. And David had his spiritual weapons, which I think included the spiritual weapon of song. There's this little verse tucked into Mark right before Jesus is going to go to the crucifixion. And I can only imagine this scene. Jesus and them, they just took the Lord's Supper. It's probably still lingering in their mouth. And Jesus knows in his darkest moment, he's now going to go um, to the, they're going to go to the Mount of Olives, and eventually, right after that, he's going he's to be crucified. And Mark chapter 14, verse 26, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, you could say Jesus did this. That's just the appropriate way to respond, but we know Jesus wouldn't do it for that reason. 
I think there was something powerful about Jesus singing with his friends in the middle of his suffering. And sometimes we think, if I don't feel it, I won't do it. And I understand that. We don't want to be hypocrites. But there's a difference when you're fighting for joy, and sometimes when you do it, you feel it. I don't feel like praying all the time, but when I just get on my knees, there's something that does to my heart. My posture affects my heart. Sometimes it works that way. Your doing affects your feeling. And so if you're not feeling the worship or the singing, that doesn't mean just be okay with hypocritical singing. It does mean you fight for joy. Sing truth. Sing truth. It forms your mind. It affects your heart. It, th- it forms your thinking. In singing, one author says, we bring our doubts to the truth and the truth to our doubts. We bring our fears to the truth and the truth to our fears. Our hearts move towards the things that we sing. If you're in that dark place right now, I would encourage you to sing. Let me land this plane. John 4.23 says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is not first and foremost seeking even servants. He's not seeking those who will get a task done. He's not seeking multitaskers or productive people. He's not seeking those who are good at welcoming or children's ministry. He's seeking worshipers who will humble themselves and recognize that this time is worth their time because he is worthy. That it's not a waste to sing to him. You know, nowadays we're obsessed with measurable progress, measurable goals. I I need to be able to show how much I've improved or grown, how much I've sharpened myself. I need to put it on Instagram, how much I could get, how many pages of the Bible I've read, or how many people are at our church, or how how much I've progressed in my career. We have to have these measurable goals, and we think that's how we measure success. That's what's worth our time. It's practical. It's efficient. I'm keeping up. I'm progressing. But the deepest things of spirituality, of Christianity, are not measurable. How do you measure someone's humility, their level of forgiveness, their heart for peacemaking, their desire to worship? How do you measure intimacy? Anyone could think they're, they're mature, oh, look at all these different things I do, but can you practice those deeper things that no one can measure? We're not getting any task done here, are we, when we sing? Singing, you stand here, you sing songs. It would be more productive for you to check your fantasy scores or check your emails or do these other things. Oh, I'd rather go out to different church or a different time because, oh, then I can work and I can gain these other measurable things. But you come here, you sing, and it's so impractical. And it might seem like a waste 
I'm not learning in a sense. I'm not in a sermon. At least I'm being engaged with like truth and doing all these things. In song, you're just offering. And there's something almost magical about it. There's something supernatural about the church coming together that science can't explain. We can't fully explain. But the world will look at it like, what a waste. What a waste of time. You could go get money doing this. You could do all these other things. In John chapter 12, Mary comes up to Jesus in response to who God is. And it says, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Do we associate and think that actually makes sense? Judas is right. That's a waste. What a waste to put that at Jesus' feet. So impractical. Not worth it at all. Could have done better with her time and money. Instead, she wasted it on God. So foolish in the eyes of the world. Makes no sense at all. But for those who have been saved, it makes perfect sense for us to be here, to value this time, to gather and sing to our Savior. And when God gives you salvation, he gives you new life, he puts your feet on solid rock, and he puts a song on your heart and praise on your lips. Have you fallen asleep? Have you forgotten God? Then even more reason you need to be here and sing. There's no such thing as I'm just going to church. Oh, I just missed church. Oh, I just missed the opening praise. This time is an all-out assault on our hearts for us to see the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Everything Satan wants to prevent. There's plenty of good things we can engage in. But worshiping God is the best thing. And yes, worship is much more than singing but let's make sure our singing is never less than worship. I said singing was impractical, but ultimately nothing is more practical than preparing yourself for eternity. Everything else is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing and singing to and glorifying Jesus Christ, who is worthy. Let me close by reading Revelation 5, 11 through 13. And I will close with this. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, a voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might 
forever and ever. Save your church if you believe this. Say amen. Let's pray. If you felt guilty earlier, then it's a good time to say sorry. That's what they did in Nehemiah 8. They, they wept when they heard God's word because they fell short. But then they worshiped and they departed with joy. For others, maybe you need to remember that God is your father. And you, by faith, you take hold of his promises right now. And even though you do fall short, even though we are broken and blemished, we recognize that is not who we are. We are children of God. And He loves us. He delights in us. Father, we oftentimes come to you and our view of you is too small. Or we think it's about ourselves and our preferences, our ways. We're preoccupied with self. God, we just want to take a moment to reflect on who you are, what you've done for us. We want to remember our salvation. We want the gospel to go deep into our hearts. We want to sing to you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And though we fall short and are faithless, God, you are always faithful to us. And so we sing to you for you are greater than our brokenness. You are greater than our sin. Your love endures forever. It's not like the love of this world. You love us to the end. And so God, for many of us right now, we do not feel like singing, but I pray that your spirit would remind us that we always have reason to sing. And may your spirit testify to our hearts that we are children of God, free, May we cry out to our Abba Father. No condemnation, no fear, and we find joy in you. And so may you be pleased with our songs. May you give us strength to fight for joy and true worship. All by your grace, all because of love, all because of who you are. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.